0: Nehemiah, and as I share with you, this is kind of the end of the series. We're getting there. Um, Anniversary Sunday will kind of wrap it up for us. So uh, we've been uh, kind of we've kind of started, and I didn't really intend for this when when I first began, but it kind of happened this way as I began mapping out chapters 12 and 13. We're actually going to kind of do a, a semi mini series within a series on worship. Because this is, this is the, the point of Nehemiah. The, the climax, if you will, of chapter 12 is what we're studying. This idea of corporate worship and worship li- lifestyle worship. Uh, chapter 13 gets a little rough, and we'll get to that. But they, basically the people of God fall away from God again. At least lots of them do. And so I thought because this is the central point, God's people really through a, through a, a long journey over hundreds of years... They come to this place where they're deeply worshiping God again. It would do us some time to pay the books uh, the emphasis they deserve. And so these next couple of weeks, we're going to really just talk about what a theology of worship is. And we'll talk about that from in this room, but also from the the Romans 12 idea that we introduced last week, lifestyle worship. And so today we pick up our talk, Living a Life of Genuine Worship, Part 2. And I'll share with you a true story. In the seventh grade, I remember going on a field trip from our public school in Brooklyn, it was you know middle school is what we called it, to visit the twin towers in Manhattan <clears throat> and it was kind of funny last week this this jogged my memory as we kind of celebrated that's really not the right word but we remembered the uh, the tragedy that took place on 9/11 in 2001 and so hearing that, about those stories and looking at those buildings reminded me of, of what was a truly privileged field trip for a middle school kid. Early one morning, uh, we packed up a yellow bus and we drove into the city from Brooklyn and we loaded the buses up and got off of the buses at the foot of the buildings. And it was pretty amazing, you know? Uh, At first, uh, everybody was excited about that trip, but not for the reason you would expect. You know, when you're in middle school, any field trip is great because it's just a day for you to not be in school, and that's pretty much what we cared about. So we were happy about the fact that we were not going to be in school, but when we got there, that, that really changed. Our attitudes dramatically changed, and I distinctly remember getting off of the bus and standing at one of the entrances to the towers, and, you know, it was like neck breaking how tall it was to stand there at the base of it and to look up. And so it, it was fascinating on the outside, but it got even better when we went into the inside. You know, they towed us through the building. We got to go up in these lightning-fast elevators. You know, you'd, you'd go up 60, 70 floors in, in what seemed like 30 seconds. They were just super fast. And so we were, like, playing with all the bells and the whistles here. And we went up to a very high floor, but we were able to look down on the street where both people, you know, people kind of looked like moving ants and cars like, like matchbox cars, like the stuff I had in my apartment floor back home. We were mesmerized. Now lots of things about that morning and that day stand out but there's one distinct memory that that is kind of etched in my brain forever. It was what it was like to stand at the foot of those buildings and to just look straight up at them. It truly did, for as much as a 7th grader can kind of, you know, understand this feeling, it created this sense of awe in me. And not just me, we were mesmerized, as I said. We were standing in the presence of something that we knew was kind of great. And throughout the course of that day, we actually, from from an architectural perspective, we deemed it as truly great. It was something great. And in many ways, that that sense of recognizing something that is great is what we are going to talk about today and over these next weeks as we continue this series in Nehemiah. We are kind of using as a springboard, I promise we will examine corporate worship, like what takes place in these walls before this ends, but we're using this idea of, of, of genuine worship in the Old Testament, right? God's people celebrate who God is through this amazing Old Testament gathering. We're taking what they're doing in the Old Testament and then comparing it, if you will, to some teachings in the New Testament of what a genuine life of worship looks like for those who follow Jesus today. Now, last week we talked about how worship includes everything we do in this place, but it cannot be restricted to everything we do in this place. Jesus taught us that worship is not validated by a place. It can happen in a place. It's happening right now. But it's not the place that validates what genuine worship is. Rather, it is the posture of our hearts as we pursue God that validates what worship is. So in other words, if you want to know how to worship God, what it means is that we spend our days loving God and learning to live for Him in everything that we say and do. That is the umbrella of what worship is. And what we do here, corporally is just one more way that we actually do that. So today's talk is a complete continuation of last week's, and in it, I want us to look at some tools that will help us to identify what we worship in our personal lives, because the genuine hope we have here is that as we think through this today and in the weeks and the years and the, the months that follow, is that we'll recognize that when we talk about ultimate love and affection, that there is no one that we aspire to love more than, than our Father in Heaven, than our God. And we're going to do this by looking at two, the two questions, if you will. Very simple. What is worship? Obviously, if we want to know how to live a genuine life of worship, it would do us well to have a concrete understanding of what this is. And then the second question is, how do we know what we worship, right? Because remember, we've got to dial out to what we understand generally worship to be, the 60 to 70 minutes that takes place in a corporate gathering like this. This is worship, but cannot be restricted to worship. This can't be restricted to worship alone. There are other ways that we worship God. And so let's jump right in and look at the first thing that I want to talk about today. Through this, this kind of section here, we'll, we'll address this first and foundational question. What is worship? And if you want to live a life of genuine worship before God, and this is the aim of every, every believer, right? For those of us trying to follow Jesus, this is what we should want to do. If you want to live a life of genuine worship before God, you must first deeply know what worship is. We have to interact with something that God teaches us about himself. And we'll revisit very quickly what we read last week in John chapter 4, 23-24. Yet a time is coming, Jesus says, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. That statement there, I know I said this last week, but I'm I'm saying it again. It blows my mind. Jesus isn't just telling us how to worship. He's saying that God is in heaven at this very moment looking at the earth. And he is in his mind and in his heart saying, these are the the types of people I I want to worship me. These attitudes, like our Father in heaven is prescribing them to us and saying if we will do this with him, we will be invited into an immeasurable, uh, amazing relationship with him, right? For they, he says, those that worship in spirit and in truth, they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And then Jesus goes on to say God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in the truth. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll know that this teaching here is from John chapter 4, and it's, it's the, the climax of a teaching, really what is a conversation, we can better say, where Jesus chronicles this story between him and a Samaritan woman at the well. The end game of what he says to her that day is this right here. And it was at that well that Jesus gave both the Samaritan woman and us a very clear teaching on the two characteristics of what it means to practice genuine Christian worship. He taught us that gen- genuine worship has two traits— And without them, it isn't genuine worship. The first is that it is enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, God's people are worshiping God, and they have a deep concept of the Spirit of God, but they don't have a concept of the Holy Spirit like we do today. Always with us, eternal with us, present, right? We'll get to this in a moment. But here, Jesus says, true worship is enabled first by the power of the Spirit, which indicates that we can do things that might resemble worship in this room and in our lives, disconnected from the power of the Spirit, and it might not be genuine worship. Worship can be a set of... of of, of ideas or actions or a routine, if you will, it can look like worship but not necessarily be worship unless it is enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way we get to understand in a deeper way what worship actually is according to the power of the Holy Spirit is when we worship God in truth. And when we say truth, and what Jesus means here by truth is that God is meant to be worshipped a certain way. And God has revealed himself to us and shared with us how he wants to be worshipped through his word. There is an, a, a definitive, objective truth. God is who he is, and he lets us know who he is through the truth of his word. So in other words, God just, he doesn't just want to be worshipped, right? God wants to be worshipped the way he wants to be worshipped. He wants to be worshipped according to the ways that he, who he is. It's not any kind of worship. He says, know my spirit, know me, and then worship me in light of this. Not who we want to make him out to be. And that can be a very common thing in worship, both in a room like this and in our lifestyles. This is the main issue Jesus speaks to with the Samaritan woman at the well. And if you recall, she thinks worship is validated by a place. She thinks it's a mountain, Mount Gerizim, the Samaritan belief. Worship is validated when we do it on that mountain. And Jesus says, listen, the mountain has nothing to do with it because my father desires to be worshipped with all of our being, with all of your being, he says. And everything you say and do, that's how God wants to be worshipped. He doesn't just want it on the mountain. He wants it 24-7 in everything you say and do. That's how God desires to be worshipped. That's a beautiful truth. It's a powerful truth. And the reason we can make this, this determination, the reason we can so authoritatively say, this is how God wants to be worshipped, is because of the word that Jesus used here, f- he uses here for, for worship. It's a very particular word in John chapter 4. For you Greek heads, it's a Greek word, proskuneo. And the general idea behind this means that we, or a person, bows down in adoration at the feet of somebody who you genuinely see as greater than yourself. In other words, Jesus says, worship here, worshiping my Father in spirit and truth, means we bow before one we adore with all of our heart, soul, and mind, because we truly do recognize he is greater than who we are. And that compels us to love him and to serve him and live for him in ways that are are powerful. Now, I want you to think of what Jesus is saying like this. Most of you know that I'm kind of a history head. And so uh, in 2010 when HBO released this series called The Pacific, which was kind of a compendium to Band of Brothers, it chronicled the, the World War II battle that the United States Marine Corps fought in the Pacific. It chronicled a great book, if you ever have a chance to read it. It's called With the Old Breed uh, at Peleliu, And it was the, the, the journal entries, essentially, of a common marine grunt named Eugene Sledge, and so they took these, these journals and the stories of a couple of other men overseas, and they drafted this, this series, and it was acclaimed because of the gritty nature, of it, it really portrayed the gritty nature of what the Pacific War looked like, and so I love history, especially that epoch of history, and I jumped to see it, and if you're in this room and you have seen the documentary, you'll likely remember the, the opening scene. It takes place in a pretty big room which is clearly a room packed with marine officers and they're all sitting in a very relaxed way, hanging out and talking. And the camera sets this up, right? It moves to the room. It's looking at different people in different places. But the one takeaway you get from the opening scene is that everybody is pretty much relaxed. They're talking about the war. They're talking about life. They're talking about everything. Some are talking quietly. Some are yelling. Some are sitting. Some are goofing off. It's a completely decentralized room of people doing their own thing. And the one thing I took away, anyways, was the looseness of the room. And that's when it happens. You kind of get sucked into this comfort o- comfortable room overhearing conversations. And without warning, in the middle of that, that, you know, kind of feeling you have, an attending officer in the room calls the whole room to attention. And in a split second, that posture changes dramatically. Every single person, no matter what they were doing, didn't even seem like the sentence was out of the mouth. The, the command was given. And in mid, mid-command, the whole room instantaneously snaps to its feet, silences itself, and faces the front of the room with a clear aisle up the middle and here's why this happens. A commanding officer walked in the room, and if you are a history head like me, this will be a name you recognize. This guy named Chesty Puller comes in. He's a respected and trusted and revered Marine. He's he's a commander of commanders, and everybody knew that, and he enters the room, right? And at that time, uh, he was respected. Today, he's borderline legendary, and the scene portrays this very specific feeling, this contrast in emotions, right? In the Marine Corps, it's pr- in any branch of the military, it's required that you stand at attention when a commanding officer or a rank above you enters a room. That, that is standard protocol. That is probably something most of us know. But the scene portrays a different image with this guy. You get the feeling that even though everybody knew they were required to, f- to stand at full attention because a rank that was greater than themselves had entered the room, the case here was that the men genuinely believed this was a guy who was great. They didn't just do it because they had to, and you can see this throughout the course of the series. They genuinely believed at this point in history they were standing before a man who was truly great, somebody who was truly worth admiring, somebody who was worth deserving uh, deserving of their full attention. That's the worship idea that Jesus is trying to get our hearts to understand here. What he's saying here is that when the Holy Spirit awakens your heart to the reality of who God is, when you start to worship God in spirit, And then you choose to give your life to him, right? You start understanding what the Spirit is saying by knowing God through his truth, and your life starts shaping around who God is. It's the beginning of a lifelong pursuit of learning to live for your God and to give him your undivided and full attention. Because you have come to the place in your life where you understand who he is, and you really do believe that he is truly worthy of your full attention. We don't just sing the songs, listen to the words, or live the lifestyle because we think God is worthy of it. We know now that we are standing in the presence of somebody great. It should cause us to, metaphorically speaking, straighten up the posture of our hearts in an act of humble submission because there is such a deep level of trust, of love, of respect, adoration, and frankly speaking, satisfaction that is derived from being in the presence of our captain, our our God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The posture of the heart changes because we know who we are worshiping. We know the love and the adoration God has shown us, and we want us to reciprocate that to the best of our abilities. And what this means over time is that this can be somewhat of a hard truth. In fact, I often talk to people who have objections with the Christian faith. They, they see teachings like this as God being, I don't know a better word for it, but like a megalomaniac. They say like he's, he's narcissistic, and he's all about himself, and he wants us to bow down before him. And the truth is that this can sound rather hard until you experience it until you understand that God in your heart is really worthy of all your worship. Over time, the more you learn to love God, that hard truth becomes something pretty beautiful. You do start to believe that he is greater than than who we are, that he does, using our metaphor, he outranks us. And it's no longer a hard fact that we're obliged to believe, because we now really do believe that we are standing in the presence of somebody great, and we want to now live our lives in light of that. We want to worship him in everything that we say and do, because we are in the presence of greatness. And God's presence, this is kind of what we're talking about here, is really a promise. It evidences something for us, that he deeply loves us and promises to never leave us. That's one of the promises of the Spirit, right? Jesus doesn't get into it here, but in other places he does. When Jesus says worship in spirit and truth, once the Spirit is in us, once, we have, once we're following Jesus, the Spirit never leaves us. If, if we've genuinely chosen to follow Christ, he's in us. He is deeply in us, and it's an evidence that God will never leave or forsake us. That's an important statement. We'll get back to that in a minute when we talk about idols. And that's why we placed such a great emphasis last week on recognizing everything we say and do in our lives is truly an act of worship. Because for those who believe, the presence of God is always in us. Think about this. The woman at the well says, I'm worshiping because I'm on the mountain. And Jesus says, no, if you truly are worshiping my Father, the Spirit is in you. And that means everything you do or do not do is an act of worship. It it blows the boundaries of the mountain to pieces. Now, over the years, I have found very few words in the Christian vocabulary that incite such a level of confusion and at times even hostility because they are so grossly misunderstood. The word worship has this kind of connotation. It can anyways, and it's my hope that as a church, this isn't ever our issue. That's why it's important that before we move on, As we wrap up this book, it's super important that we have an understanding of what worship is, a crystal clear understanding of how God defines worship according to his truth. So if you combine the part of the teaching I gave you last week and the way Jesus defines it here with this word, proskuneo, to bow down in adoration before someone you truly deem greater than yourself, you come up with a good working definition, and I'll share it with you now. You won't find this in a textbook. This is my definition of worship based on what we're reading here, and I'd like to share it with you today. I think it's very accurate and powerful. It's very practical. Worship, really, genuine worship, is the act of bowing down in adoration before God because you genuinely see him as greater than yourself. It is a posture of the heart that compels you to give your ultimate love and affection to God by living your life in light of his truth because he is worthy of it. I want to say it one more time. Worship, genuine worship, is the act of bowing down in adoration before God because you genuinely see him as greater than yourself. It is a posture of the heart that compels you to give your ultimate love and affection to God by living your life in light of His truth, because He is worthy of it. It's not a routine, it's a reality in the heart. Now, once we define, and just as importantly own that definition in our hearts, it should both logically and theologically raise a central question. If worship is so central to the Christian life, And last week we established, introduced, if you will, the idea that everybody in this life is worshiping something. That it raises a question. How can, since the heart has been built to worship, how can you and I ensure or do our best to ensure that we are not worshiping things in our lives that are diminishing our affections for God? We're either going to be worshiping Him or something or a combination of the two. Because to be Christian while worshiping something that isn't God as if it is God, simply put, in Old Testament terms... It's idolatry. It's false worship. It is the problem the Israelites have had up to this point. They have learned to love other things more than their God, and it took them away from God. And they're at this apex moment in their history where they have now learned to throne God where he belongs. They put him at the top of their food chain regarding how they love and serve him, and God's working in them in amazing ways. This is what I want to talk about. This leads me to the second question we're going to look at today. How can I identify what I am worshiping in my life to ensure I am not creating idols. You do not have to be religious or part of a religion or part of Christianity or anything else to to practice worship. Every human is doing it in some way. Now the passages in Nehemiah and John we've been examining over these past weeks are really like a blueprint. They reveal the framework for how people create idols and worship them in their heart. And being able to identify the idols in our lives is a critical discipline for the Christian. And I use that word discipline for a reason. It's not just something we pick up and know. We've been designed to worship, that's for sure. But we've been specifically called to worship God and God alone, which means there's going to be a little bit of spiritual muscle memory we have to apply to this. Being able to understand the idols in our hearts and frankly being able to love others when they struggle with it, it is a discipline. It is something we will have to work at and pray for wisdom on. But the truth is that we all have them. And when we are worshiping something as if it were God that isn't God, the great problem with this is not knowing what your idol is— is it will always drive a deep wedge between us and God and and us and each other. If you want to look at the great stories of people who fall away, it usually starts here. They start to love something more than God. That fractures the relationship this way. And then the next thing you know, it starts fracturing the relationship this way. And we've already said a million times here, it is integral that to grow in the grace of Jesus, you grow in his grace in community with others. So to start loving something that isn't God as if it is God starts pulling you away from the two main ways that God calls you to grow in him. Loving him and others, right? Now, typically, the creation of a worship idol is a three-step process. Step one is that God gives you a really good thing to be thankful for. It always starts here. It's, our idols are usually always rooted in something really good. Step two is that we take this really good thing, however it is that God blesses us, and then we make it this ultimate thing. And we start to embrace this rhythm of loving what God gives us more than the God who actually gives it to us. Right? We're in the middle ground now. And left unchecked, step three is full-blown idolatry what happens is you naturally start to find your identity in whatever it is you're starting to love more than God. And you start to worship it. And at this point, there's no, there's no longer a debate. The concrete affections of your heart love what God gives you more than the God who gave it to you. Now, there are lots of examples I can use of, about this. Uh, the Pharisees in the Scripture are a great example. They love the law, so they become legalists, right? They love the law more than they love the God of the law. The most common one that I see in our culture today is this example of uh, of success, and that's what I want to talk about here for a moment, because in, in the Western world, this is an impr- an incredibly important thing. So let's look at the common ex- uh, example of success to unpack the idol building process here. Let's look at what it means to create a worship idol and to also uh, uh, to w- to worship at the altar of success. Super common, as I've mentioned in our world, and think about it logically speaking, like the legalist in the law. If what you want most in life is to be successful. And for people to think that you matter because you have succeeded in whatever it is you're trying to do, raising a good family, accomplishing the career, you know, uh, climbing the ladder, whatever it is, whatever, if, if success is at the root of why you do what you do, then what happens is very likely at some point you'll interact with these three steps and you will make success a God in your life and you will do everything you can do to attain it and you will learn to adore it more than anything else. And when you do that, you will start to live for it because you love it. Now, this worship truth is one of the reasons why so many people become workaholics in our culture. This is the story of my family. My dad, um, he was really strong with us growing up on a work ethic, but it wasn't for success in the traditional sense. My, go- uh, my dad married working with provision. Like, if you were to talk to my dad, he, he would probably not say that he was emotionally there for us because he worked all the time. That was his way of learning to love us. And so what happened was is it created a bit of a workaholic culture, one that you know, is passed down to me. The, the, the ethic of work is super important. But what happens is, is if you let that go unchecked, then what starts to happen is you'll learn to love the work more than you, than you do, in my case, the family you're, you're starting to provide for or wanting to provide for. That's the great tension my dad and I always dealt with growing up. And so workaholism here can be, can be a challenge, right? Because like following Jesus, if we're going to be successful— We start working a ton. We start orienting our life around it. Like following Jesus, the God of success calls a person to bring every area of their life under Jesus. To follow Jesus means to make him Lord. To want success more than anything in life means that you've made success Lord. And that is a shifty God like all the other idols. It makes promises that that it can't keep. It promises to be with you. Every idol does this. I promise I will be with you like your God, but the truth is that I actually can't can't keep that promise. I cannot promise to have, for you to have my presence all the time. And so what happens with, with, uh, with success is that you realize success is like a swinging pendulum. When you find success, because there are days when it happens, we're joyful. We're, life's good. But when we try to attain success and we don't get it, well, then we're wrecked. We get wrecked in our souls. Because we start saying things like, well, success. I've done everything I can to earn you. Why, why have you betrayed me? We can't figure that out. So what happens is we try to figure that out. When the latter happens is we start, we start to work, uh, walk the road of ro- uh, excuse me, the road of emotional despair. We start evoking emotions. We, we're, we're clinging on to things. You can trade joy for stress. You trade joy for anxiety. You trade joy for depression. Because when you worship at the altar of something that is a lesser identity than the one you have in Jesus, you are going to be robbed of your true and unassailable identity and joy in Jesus. We've already talked about that. And the great irony of every idol, in this one in particular, we're talking about success, is that, hear me, success and work are not bad things. They only become bad things when we push them through that three-step grinder. That's the great irony. It's not a bad thing until we choose to adore it above all else. That's when we make it a god, and that's when we start to worship it. So let's take success and return to our idol-making blueprint and see how people make it an idol. Step one, God gives us a very good thing in life. In the scripture, it's indisputable. I taught on work about a year and a half ago. There's a great detail about this there. If you want to follow this trail of crumbs, I'll just touch on it briefly. In the scripture, work in general and even being successful in your work is a really good thing. It is a God-ordained thing. It pleases God when we are fruitful and productive in life. It's a gift he gives us, the, the gift of work. It's the very first image we have of God. It's him working to bring about the world and life as we know it. We are here, and we are experiencing his love because of the things that God has done. We speak of the grace of Jesus today because of what theologians say, the work of the cross. Jesus put his time in on the cross for us to redeem us, right? We're all byproducts or beneficiaries, if you will, of what God has done of his work. He brings about life in us as we know it. And so the first thing to point out here is that if we worship the idol of success, we cannot blame the work. That's what we want to do. It's a job. And I'm not saying it can't be tense, but I'm saying inherently work is a gift from God. It's a good gift. So the problem is not necessarily the job. And if, if it is truly an abusive environment, that's a different story. But we cannot default blame to things around us for idols. Idols are made from the heart. So if we take work and success, a gift that is good from God, The problem arises when we move into step two. We take what is a good thing and a good desire, this desire to work hard and succeed that God gives us, and we start to make it an ultimate thing. It's when we literally take the good thing that God has given us, and then we turn around and we use it to neglect the relationship of the very God who was good enough to give it to us in the first place. It's like an idol swap. We trade a God for a God, lowercase g and a capital G. When we worship at the idol of success, everything else suffers, right? and naturally you arrive at step three. Once you make the swap, or begin to make the swap, you find your main identity in life. If you're in Jesus, no longer as a, as a, as a child of God, right? as a son of Jesus or a daughter of Jesus, everything that you do now orients around success because the primary moniker in your life that you want to be known for is success. And as a result, everything in your life that does not help you accomplish that gets pushed to the back of the line in your life. This is why, jumping back to the workaholic idea, People can so easily neglect what are obviously super important things in their lives. They neglect the spouse. They neglect the children. They neglect other matters in life because they literally get so consumed with the idol itself that they can no longer see how they're hurting the people around them. They just don't have clarity in that anymore. And here's why. It's very natural. The same kind of thing happens with us and God. It's just in a very benevolent and good way. When you worship something that isn't God as if it is God, it becomes the Lord of your life and it demands that you give your whole life to it it reorients you around it. And when you reorient your life around shifty gods, it creates problems. And the reason success is a shifty god, think about this, many of you in this room have have, have attained this, is because even if you actually do succeed at what you do, if success is no longer something you're striving for, but it becomes the ultimate thing you're striving for, then that means success is your idol. And if success is your idol, no amount of success will ever be enough there is always going to be a bigger, better, higher ladder to climb. When you accomplish goals A, B, and C, you will recognize goals D, E, and F are right around the corner. So you will spend your whole life in the pursuit of success. And it is in this way that success ensures you will always worship it. And frankly speaking, the idols, whatever they are, ensure that we will always be enslaved to them. That is what every idol we worship, like God, does to us. And it will do it to us in in its own unique ways. The effects might be different, but the, the substance of what's happening is the, is the same. That's what happens when we pursue the idol. But a, a true Christ worshiper knows something very different. And think about this. When you worship God with all of your heart, you have the freedom to pursue things like success. You get to do that. Except you get to do it without the pressure of having to have it be your God. Because you know who you are in Jesus. So I'm not saying don't, don't try for success, don't work hard. Just know the priority scheme. And know that who you are in Christ can't be changed by acquiring success or the lack of it. When you pursue success that way, something happens in your heart. You, you find stability in life. And the stability associated with that identity is immeasurable. You now are, the analogy I used years ago, you're a coast card cutter cutting through the waves of the ocean. The, the, the goal doesn't change, but you have stability as you migrate towards it. And you have steel, a steel bow to deal with it if you don't get what you're trying to move towards in life. No idol, right? No idol, and in this case the God of success, it doesn't promise us. This is the lie of the idol. They never promise us that they will never leave us or forsake us. We think that's going to happen. We think when we find the idol of success or whatever it is, that we'll be there forever. But the truth is that nobody's story is just success. In fact, most of us have great failures that lead to it. That's the lie of the idol. They don't promise a permanent presence in our lives. However, there is a guy who did. His name is Jesus And in a myriad of places, he promises us that he will never leave or forsake us. When we cast our affections on him and we give our whole to him, he promises that he's going to speak into our life and he's going to help us understand all these other things that we pursue, no matter what they are, he's going to give us clarity in them. Unlike an idol, Jesus promises to never take advantage of our love. He promises to never abuse our affection. He promises to never enslave us through our worship of him. He says, I will set you free when you worship me. And even better, like as if we're just throwing like a a promise on a promise, I'll help you find stability and balance in all the things that are wrecking your life right now. That's the byproduct of worshiping Christ. And it's why we should never want to worship an idol, no matter what it is. And it's why we should, in our hearts, desire to have this discipline, to know when our hearts are learning to love something more than God, like it is God. Now, I could spend all morning, you know, you could throw a word out here, we could take the idol, whatever the end game is, Power, success, comfort, relationships, friendships, whatever it is, we can take that word, and I guarantee you, we can lift it up to the top of that three-step grinder and plug it down and see how we, can, how we do this. We can see how the good things that God gives us, they become idols when we begin to love them more than God. But by now you get, the stat, you, you, you get the point, you see it. The really good things, when disconnected from their God-given intent, become idols we worship. And idols always diminish our affections for God. We cannot love God with all of our heart and something else. Something gives. And the scripture teaches us that every person has an idol in their life. Maybe some of us have several things we struggle with. That does not mean that you're wrecked you know, consistently in your life, but it means that we probably all have natural tendencies that we, we migrate towards when we're off base with God. And what we do with them, what what our idols could be, and what happens in our lives because of them, they are often as unique as the person who worships them. That's the beautiful thing about the way God's made us, right? We're kind of all unique thumbprints. We're all a little different. And we even worship God in the room together a little bit differently. We're accessing Him in different ways, and He's speaking to us in different ways. The same is true with idols. They, They express themselves differently in our lives, but the root issue is the same. And so the way I want to wrap up today is to give you guys three, three questions, right? Diagnostic questions that you can ask yourself that will help you, and me too, to identify what could potentially be an idol right now or what has the high capacity to be an idol. Because remember, at its root, it's almost always a good thing that God gives us that we make an ultimate thing. And What I'm about to share with you is not new. It's kind of common vernacular in the Christian faith. But I, uh, I sourced Tim Keller on this, so I want to make sure that you don't think I wrote this on my own. This is a, this is a theology that most of us in our, our Christian tradition have, have embraced. But this section particularly is taken from one of his works. And so here are three diagnostic questions you can ask yourself that will help you identify a potential idol in your life. And I want to share with you the rhythm of how we're going to do this this morning. I'm going to ask a question, comment for a few moments, and then I'd like to give you a moment of space in between each question to answer that in your heart. And if you have something to write on or your phone, to notate that. So listen to this with the intent of responding immediately to God. Obviously not out loud, but in your own heart. I I hope that at the end of this you'll be able to answer these questions, and I'll provide you some space during the talk for it. Question one. Ask yourself, what do you most want to spend your time doing? What do you do that you just cannot get enough of, right? All of us have loves in our lives, affinities, hobbies. Maybe for you it's golf, right? Some people love golf. Somebody has to. It's not me. You know my hatred of golf. I'll give you the reason for that one day. But maybe it's the golf course, or maybe it's hanging out with other people, community is your thing, or maybe it's your job, or maybe it's hunting or fishing or a relationship or your children or a computer game. I mean, the list is infinite, right? Because we are all different and diverse, a good way to identify what is or could become an idol in your life, all these things are good right now, right, is to ask yourself, listen, if, if you rubbed a genie in a bottle, right, and it came to you and said, what do you want to spend the rest of your days doing? Most likely how you answer that is, is a high capacity for an idol. Whatever you could do with your time, if you could do it every single moment of your day, has the potential to be an idol, the high potential. Because the things we love doing often become the things we love to worship. And hobbies can be like that, right? Uh, even too, I didn't really touch on this today, but um, I've talked to several moms in our church and in life, and even my wife who's mentioned this, that sometimes raising children, can, the children themselves can become an idol for the, for the mom. I'm not saying this like dads are exempt from this, but the truth is that you can so be consumed by raising your children that you forget you're raising, in the Christian world, you're, cre- you're raising your children for the Lord to release them for his service, right? So anything that is good can potentially become an idol. And remember, all of them, are good by default, but if you make them ultimate things and start to orient your life around them, you're drifting into idol worship territory. That will diminish your affections toward towards God and it will overpower the other. You know, the best way you can love a hobby, the best way you can love your spouse or your children is to learn to love God first because He's going to shape your affections in a way that are true and right and you're going to then pass on those affections to the people in your life. So take a minute now and just think on this, pray on this, ask yourself, What do you most want to spend your time doing? What do you do that you just can't get enough of? And I pray that you will ask God for clarity in this. I will do the same with you right now. Take a moment of silence and just try to answer this in your heart. Question number two. What do you worry most about losing in life? What is it that if anything in life is going to keep you up at night? What do you worry about losing the most in life? Now, one of the easiest ways to identify what could be a potential worship idol in your life is to ask yourself, what could you, Im- Im- what could you not possibly imagine li- living without? What do you currently have in your life, no matter how good or right or true it is? If you lost it, would, would it ruin you? If you lost your job, would you fall apart? If a relationship you have now fell apart or somebody suddenly disappeared, would you, would you be unable to go on? I'm not diminishing the pain of these things. I'm just saying, would you, know, would you be ruined as a human? Maybe you've got something in your life right now that you're saying, if something went wrong in this, in this area, I, I would fall apart, right? It has the very high potential, if this is the way you think, of being something you worship, of it being a false god. If right now you're clinging to a thing or a person or an issue, or you have fallen so in love with something that you begin to derive your identity, meaning, worth, and value from it more than who Jesus says you are, then it is an idol. And remember, this is likely going to be something that is very good in its root but can become very destructive if it's made an ultimate thing. So I'd, I'd like you to take a moment thinking about this. What do you worry most about losing in your life? And ask God if you are worried, you know, if if you have more worry of losing that because you have less of a love for him. In other words, do you find the stability in the thing you're worried about losing, or do you recognize that even through loss, God can provide amazing stability? Ask yourself that question. Meditate on that for the next minute, and then we'll move on to the last question. So we've mentioned what we spend our time on. We've mentioned what we worry most about losing in life. The last question I'd like to ask you is this. When there is a conflict between the demands of life, in other words, when when life starts stretching you in directions that truly do stretch you, when there is a conflict between the demands of life, where do you most effortlessly and certainly put your money? Think of the hard times, right? Or think of the excess times wherever you are here. There's a reason Jesus tells us that where our treasure in life is, is where we will also find the ultimate desires of our heart. We'll be cast our treasures upon. We'll we'll actually talk about this today in our gospel partnership class. What What we treasure and value in life, and he talks about money specifically, indicates what we tend to love and worship in life. So what he's saying here is whatever you tend to spend your money on is likely going to be a tell of what you worship most in life. Again, money in scripture is not a bad thing. We, we find that the love of money is the root of evil. We forget that key word there. So money in itself is a tool that God has p- provided on earth. We can earn it. We can use it for his kingdom and his glory. The, that's not the issue. What we start to love m- with our money, or when we love money itself, that becomes the issue. And I've said before that most of the people I have counseled over the years, and there have been a lot of them, who have come to me with financial problems, have seldom come to me because they don't have enough money, I'm not saying that can never be the case, but I'm saying that's not usually the case. It's almost entirely because they are poor stewards of the money they have, no matter how much it is. And that's what Jesus in this question is getting at. Think about this. If you never have enough money to be consistently generous with others, to consistently support the gospel work of our church with tithes and offerings, to consistently help a person with genuine need, if you don't have the, the lenses of generosity on, right, that Jesus says we should have, but you always have enough time and effort and money to take care of yourself, or to take yourself out to eat, or to get the things you want most in life. I heard a guy one time say it, that I think it is a bullseye, that every human is generous in life. They either choose to be extremely generous with themselves or other people, or somewhat of a combination of both. Generosity exists in a human heart. It's just that we can lavish ourselves at the expense of others at times. That's what Jesus and this question is getting at. Sometimes, right, Sometimes we can do this at the expense of the genuine needs of others. Wants can exceed genuine needs. Or, if we're dealing with people who live beyond their means, I guess what I want to say here is that this is not a money issue. This is a heart issue. It's an idol issue, and it is ultimately a worship issue. Because what you always seem to have money for, no matter what's going on, good or bad, is very likely an indicator of what you might be worshiping in life. Money is meant to be a tool that serves us, not the other way around. And when we, when we worship at its altar, it can wreck us in really bad ways. And it, it creates two idols. I'm actually going to do a series on money down the road, the theology of it. But the short story is you wind up getting to this place where you become literally extreme spenders or, or savers. You can worship at the altar of savings or, or, or personal lavish. Both are not great because money's a tool to serve us. So ask yourself, is there something in your life right now, is there a spending pattern that, I- that indicates you love it more than you love Jesus? Take a moment and then we'll conclude. If this morning your desire is to practice genuine worship, then I want to encourage you and challenge you to do a couple of things. The first is that you have to embrace the definition of worship in your heart that we discussed today. Or at least you can skip over mine and go right to Jesus'. Focus on worshiping God through His Spirit and His truth. Make sure that you, you, the, rhythms, the rhythms of your life are going to be dictated by, by your worship patterns. And so if you, in a way, are misunderstanding who God is you're going to worship it, your, your life's going to have a, a lifestyle of worship that reflects that. So make sure no matter where you find yourself today, you have the courage to, to ask God, to let him teach you, to show you what it means to genuinely worship him. You know, have the courage to ask him if there are idols in your life right now that you're worshiping, maybe ones I didn't even mention, there are a lot, that are diminishing your affections for God. Because what you think about the most and what you worry about the most And what you spend your money on the most are almost always a strong indication of where your idols might be. If you've sensed that today by the power of the Spirit, don't neglect that. Ask God to work in your heart. Find somebody here that loves you, that can help you with that. That's our job, is for us to grow together in grace. But to recognize, too, that sometimes in some seasons, that happens better than it does in others. So if you've identified an issue, know this is a place of grace, and we want to see you grow in Jesus through it. And as we move towards response time, I want to challenge you. And this is going to be the cry I give you each week until this series is over. If we want, you want to know how to build a kingdom, then I want to challenge you to not sell yourself short on when it, when it comes to how you choose to worship God with your life. Don't restrict it to a room. Don't restrict it to a, to a space. Recognize that God's presence is with you all the time, which means we should be worshiping him all of the time when it comes to this question, what is Jesus saying to you about what you worship in life? And what do you intend to do about it? It is our prayer this morning that you would honestly answer those questions before our God, your God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this time this morning to think and to pray and to process. Thank you for the opportunity that you revealed your greatness to us, not through pride and arrogance, but through humility and selfless love. The greatest example we have of who you are is Jesus And so whenever we think about worshiping somebody, bowing down in adoration at the feet of somebody who is greater than us, I pray that you would automatically take our minds and our hearts and connect them to the life and the love of Jesus, many of which us in this room have experienced today. And if there are those of us in this room that maybe have not experienced that, if we've not learned to love Jesus genuinely with our heart, soul, and mind, I pray that this would be the morning that you would move so deeply in the lives of people that they would want to investigate that question, or that they might even answer it and choose to love you with all that they are. God, take this time now in a season of life and and during life, God, where, where times are often busy. I pray this quiet moment of contemplation, taking what we have reflected on and what you are going to lead us to reflect you. Use this time now for us to genuinely respond to you and to follow you in the places you lead us in life. It is in the name of Jesus we pray in this moment. Amen.